0: Good morning and welcome to Words That Matter. I'm Lee Smith, your host of Words That Matter, a modern-day book club. Today, uh, we're going to be joined by one of my favorite writers. Um, I just want to talk about him for a second before I bring him on, so I'm going to uh, brag on him a little bit. Uh, I started reading uh, our, our, our next guest, Lee Harris. Oh, I don't know. It was right after 9-11, and he just wrote some incredibly important books. Um, And I'm just going to hold up his his three books, which I have right here on my bookshelves. And I use them as, um, well, first of all, he's a terrific prose writer. So I just like reading his prose for pleasure. Um, But also his insight and his information, just fantastic. So, uh, Civilization and Its Enemies, The Next Stage of History by Lee Harris. The Suicide of Reason, and this was a big 9-11, very important post-9-11 book. The Suicide of Reason, Radical Islam's Threat to the West. And here is his, um, his most recent book, The Next American Civil War, The Populist Revolt Against the Liberal uh, Elite. And in it, Lee essentially predicted the coming of Donald Trump and the rise of the America First movement without having any idea that Donald Trump was going to rise um, to fill that role in American politics, in American society. Right now, Lee has, uh, is under contract for a new book. Um, he's at work writing on it. So today what we're going to do is we're going to get an insight um, into a writer at work. I want to talk about the, the subject of his book. We're going to talk about how he's going about writing it uh, and, and what are the different... procedures and processes he goes through to get his work done as a writer. So without further ado, welcome, Lee Harris. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Your new book, I just wanted to say, I forgot to say, I know you're not quite finished yet, but if you can, uh, and and the ideas will change a little bit through the writing, but if you can give us a general idea of, of what it's about.
1: The title of the book, you got stuck on reason there. The title of the book is What's Wrong with the Right Side of History. And this refers to the the very common uh, metaphor you hear, especially among liberal politicians, when they declare that, that implicitly that they, of course, are on the right side of history. And they also, at the same time, make it very clear that their enemies or opponents are on the wrong side of history. Now, the question to me is, where did this metaphor come from? Because it's obviously a metaphor. Uh, I was I was reminded of it yesterday when I heard uh, Karine uh, Jean Pierre talking about the impeachment of Marquez, where she declared that history will judge this. Okay, again, this use of the word history as if it's a, it's a personification of of this thing called history. Where did this idea come from? And what happened with this book is what happened with all my other projects where I feel kind of impelled to go back and look, look into the depths of, of where these ideas come from. And so what I started doing was kind of speculating about how the future was looked upon by people in the past. In the modern world from the 19th century, we developed the notion that the future is going to be brighter, better. Than the present and a great, great improvement over the past. But if you look back at history, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks would have found this concept just incomprehensible. For them, they were convinced, this, you know, this is true of Hesiod the poet, it was true of Plato the philosopher, that the best days of mankind were way in the past in what was called the golden age. And since that time, mankind had been constantly getting worse and worse and worse. The Romans who were influenced by Greek thought also felt the same thing. The poet Lucretius believed there had been some progress up into his own day, like man had discovered fire, had superior social organization, but it all stopped with Lucretius. This is about 2,200 years ago. With, With the coming of Christianity, a new notion of history of the future entered into the world, which was that God was in control of history. It's called the idea of divine providence, that he's looking after events. We can't predict what he's going to do, but we know that whatever he does, it will come out for the best. This idea basically held on uh, tenaciously in in the European mind until the coming of the Renaissance. Now, the Renaissance is is really the first movement in, in, in world history where a group of people look at the immediate past, that is the Middle Ages and they regard their immediate past as a period of utter darkness, absolutely nothing's worth salvaging from, from the Christian Middle Ages for, for the men of the Renaissance. What they want to do, what they think of as the ideal future, is not to go to the future, but to go to the past, to revive the ideals of classical antiquity, to to revive the Roman form of the Republic, for example, or to revive the Greek ideals of art and painting and sculpture. The Enlightenment, people often think the Enlightenment, the 18th century Enlightenment, was where the idea of progress first began. But in fact, if you look at the great Enlightenment thinkers, like uh, take Hume, David Hume, Voltaire, or Diderot, these people did not, they they felt that, that, again, they felt that they had progressed from the Dark Ages, from from the rule of of the Roman Catholic Church, but they didn't really see a lot of hope for the future. Voltaire was a professional historian, as well as being a famous wit. David Hume was more famous at his time for being a historian. And Edward Gibbon, of course, is probably the most famous of the three historians of that period. This is the Enlightenment. All believed mankind was pretty, was pretty immutably rotten, that you couldn't really get much, expect much from mankind, either in the present or in the future. The future would be kind of the same old, same old of human wickedness and vice, etc. cetera. It's only at the period that during the French Revolution, and you can point to one specific thinker, the, the Marquise de Codice, who in 1793, while he was being hunted by the French revolutionaries, by the way, for his, his own ideas, he published a book about human progress, where he laid out not only the steps of the past that had led to the present moment, but he laid out steps to the future that would lead to a better and brighter world, not only a better and brighter world, but one in which human beings through society, through correcting the old institutions, would become perfect. They would actually achieve rapt immortality. The English novelist and philosopher William Godwin on the continent was also an enthusiast with the French Revolution, and he also made the same argument. Human beings could be perfected, and in fact, they could obtain immortality on this earth. So the 19th century introduced this wholly new concept of the future, and I call it the future revolution. This was not only embraced by people like Condorcet or, or Godwin. It became the leading doctrine of, what, of the of people like uh, Charles Fourier, who was the famous utopian socialist. It became a chief tenet of Marxism. Karl Marx believed that history was moving through, had moved through stages like Hegel thought. But he also predicted that history would move through future stages, each better. Capitalism, which had served its purpose, Marx thought capitalism was progressive, would be replaced by socialism, and the further, the final stage would be communism. At which point history would come to an end. So these visions, these visionaries of the future, uh, had this idea that the future is where it's at. And I try to explain that in terms of the loss of faith in the Christian ideas that had permeated intellectuals in Europe to some, to a great extent. People like Feuerbach, people like Marx, who were arguing that essentially. Instead of having faith in, in God and divine providence, faith must now be centered on the future. The future is what you live for, it's what you died for, it's what you you know you martyred yourself for the sake of the glorious days coming in the future. Okay. The American progressive movement accepted this idea. So did the social Darwinists. The social Darwinists believed that the evolutionary process itself guaranteed that the best races would, you know, would triumph. The the Nazis themselves, the National Socialists, believed in progress too. They believed that progress came only when the Aryans were in control. They looked back on history. Uh, this was Houston uh, Stuart Chamberlain was the great uh, philosopher of this idea, of this idea, which is that only Aryans had had contributed to civilization. Therefore, the way the best way to guarantee progress is giving Aryans supreme dominant power, and the best Aryans, of course, were the Germans themselves. So the 20th century curiously turned out to be a battle, a conflict between these different visions of the future. Because remember, the Bolsheviks had their own vision of the future, which was through, through revolution, eventually through global revolution, the final stage you uh, would pass through the stages of socialism and you'd end up in the worker's paradise. In the, in the, at, the, at, the, at the culmination of history, where history would come to an end. Now, all these visions assume that when mankind reached this final state, there would be nothing left to do. You would simply, you would have century after century of harmonious, blissful peace and harmony uh, due to, to communism. Now, this itself is a, little, is a little strange idea. And in the book, I quote, I, I use the, the, the famous novel by H.G. Wells, The Time Machine as a demonstration. In The Time Machine, uh, the unnamed narrator goes forward like hundreds of thousands of years into the future. He lands in this community where these beautiful young men and girls just are just enjoying what looks like a revival of the golden age of the Greeks. You know, they're 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 absolutely they're they're beautiful, they're they're in harmony. And but then he observes something a little strange. One of the girls, this beautiful girl falls in the river and is screaming for help and nobody even turns around. And he suddenly realizes that maybe this is not the golden future that socialism was predicted. And he discovers that the Morlocks are actually feeding these people. Morlocks live under the earth under the, the earth. And they provide these people with this ideal wealth, welfare state where they don't have to work, food's provided for them. But the problem is that you know, while Big Brother in Orwell just watches you, the Morlocks will eat you. They want to eat you. So they're breeding these people as cattle. So what I think, even though H.G. Wells was a confirmed and convinced socialist, I think as a novelist, he had an insight into a fallacy of socialism, which is if we could in fact achieve this perfect utopian world, what would happen to the human beings in it? Maybe human beings need struggle. maybe we need conflict in order to keep from relapsing into mindless sheep. And I think this is the real lesson that, that, is, that, that he suggests in his novel which really contradicts his own doctrinaire theory of Fabian socialism. And this now brings us to the American progressives. As the title, when, when
0: somebody says, I'm a progressive, what are they saying? Is this an ideology? Um, when we're talking about, because I just want to go back and, and identify, you said it, I just want to make clear yes. that, 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 that sort of the, origi- sure. the, the origins of progressivism seem to be, as you're saying, that the origins of progressivism come out of the French Revolution, that that's the idea, that's where it's born, the idea of men becoming, uh, or the secular idea, uh, men becoming perfectible, reaching a, reaching a perfect stage. That this starts with the French Revolution. I just wanted to make it clear, because that's a fascinating piece of history, which I didn't know. So I just, I just wanted to underscore that. Um, and so, so that's where we pick it up with the American um, with the American progressives. But you know what, I, I just want to say that, me- let's take a break for, for one minute and let's pick it up with that after our break. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, please make the jump with us to Epoch TV exclusively, having a fantastic conversation uh, with the brilliant Lee Harris talking about the book that he is working on right now, What is Wrong with the Right Side of History? Uh, He's working on it right now, and we're talking about it right now. We're going to start talking about it again right after the break. So make sure you make the jump with us to Epoch TV exclusively. See you in less
2: than a minute. Uh, I think a big part of 1984 uh, was that regular citizens were reporting other citizens for disobeying, for going against narrative, for speaking out. In a lot of what we thought were civilized free countries where neighbors were calling the police If, for instance, there were more than four people, more than six people in your home. But we were shifting by lockdowns, the burden of the disease, to the so-called essential workers crowd, which are the people working in the grocery stores, the people cleaning the toilets in the hospital, the people that are uh, delivering for Amazon, while the affluent are sitting at home uninterrupted for the most part, getting their full salary working on their laptop. So there was a, Hmm. this is unethical for public health guidance to shift the burden of a disease to poor people. They got away with it in a great, to a great extent, because of the very effective use of censorship, of opposing views and demonization of opposing views. So that this sort of propaganda where it marginalized anyone who spoke against the narrative, uh, became very effective, and that is a tactic that was uh, actually used very, very much so in 1984. Orwell wrote the book at a time as a warning uh, about the uh, the appeal of totalitarianism to elites and intellectuals mm. at the time in the late 1940s.
0: Hey, thanks for making the jump, and welcome back to Words That Matter, a modern-day book club. And I'm your host, Lee Smith. We're having a great conversation with one of my favorite writers, the great Lee Harris. Um, And we're talking about his work in progress, What is Wrong with the Right Side of History. And when we left off right before the break, Lee had given us a a spellbinding, uh, mesmerizing history of of the idea of... um, (laughs) Of progress how people, y- human beings intellectuals started con- contemplating the future not the past but how they were looking to the future um, and we ended off we were about to begin uh, talking about American progressivism we ended talking about like how progressivism started in the French Revolution and now Lee has taken us into American progressivism so without further ado Lee please if you could if you could pick it up from there and if, I, if I've uh, mangled anything and I'm sure I have please correct me but but um, let's continue this 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 great uh, this great story you're telling
1: interesting now, we're not going to jump we're not gonna jump right into the present moment okay okay because one of the things that one of the issues that was that was haunting me when I was when I started thinking about this future idea is how did we get where we are now with the woke movement? The woke movement, of course, claims to be progressive. So, the, and they'll, they'll tell you that you know, they're very progressive, that they're the latest you know, brand of progressivism. So one of the things I looked at is what are the, some of the causes the progressives have, have championed over American progressives have, have championed since the beginning of the, the movement, basically in the 19th century with the American transcendentalists we talked about before. And if you look at at, at their track record, the progressives have been Correct about a number of things. Most of us agree, like uh, women's rights, no question about that, or or the granting of civil rights to you know to African Americans. But there have been a lot of causes that maybe the progressives would rather forget about. One of which was eugenics in the 19, uh, beginning at the, the, the beginning of the twentieth century. Uh, so the social Darwin movement, which basically argued that that the inferior breeds would kind of die off naturally. Uh, the eugenics movement said well wait that's let's move that head let's let's have them die off a little bit more quickly and the, the eugenic idea was let's sterilize people who are not going to march along in the march of progress the people who are going to hold us us from from making progress from being on the right side of history and so the, the genetics program became very popular among american progressives this is something that people don't like to think about or remember but there's a prince and historian who's actually written about this subject and literally, he says that there are hundreds, thousands of people who probably call themselves progressive, who were big into eugenics. And it wasn't merely a, a theory. This was a practice. The very progressive Woodrow Wilson, in, in, when he was governor of New Jersey, before he became president, actually signed a bill that mandated uh, sterilization for, for people who were considered feeble-minded. Uh, prohibition was another progressive idea. Abraham Lincoln said once he solved the slavery issue, he was going to go ahead with prohibition, because obviously, the helpless alcoholic is not marching, not helping us in the march of history. So the eugenics movement was actually considered a very progressive cause, because by eliminating these people who were not you know, quite as good at marching on the right side of history and as fast as others, we would further progress. And again, this shows the idea that the notion of progress, which we kind of all take, as you know, everyone knows what progress is, it's, it's no such thing. In fact, it's an amazingly slippery concept. Obviously, if the Soviet Union can think it's, it's forwarding mankind's progress, and the, and the Nazis too, and social Darwinist as well, then this, this is a very problematic idea and concept. And people don't don't pay enough attention to that problem in, in the very idea. But what's happened with the, the woke is that you now have, it, it, to me, it, it, it's almost like you wake up one day and everyone's gone woke. It's this kind of overnight revolution and so what i wanted to do is like look back into history and see what aspects of history is being are, are are being uh tapped into here and one of the things for example is during the
2: enlightenment
1: there were people like one of the most uh interesting figures in the Enlightenment was the obvious who basically this is an early part of the 18th century was advertising advising uh, state-run secular education in which an elite group of educators would teach children and basically wean the children away from the antiquated superstitions and values of their parents. And this theme is current with us today where the woke educators feel like they have to liberate their their young wards from the superstitions and the antiquated ideas of their parents. Now the problem here is that American parents in 2023 are not to be compared with French peasants in seventeen you know, twenty-five, they're a lot more progressive, and the bind that modern progressives find themselves in is, is the law of re- uh, diminishing returns. That America has made so much progress by the lights of the early progressives. You know, we have we we have gay rights. We have all you know all these rights that have been you know, handed out right? so. And the problem now becomes: How can I still be a progressive if you know my uncle, my funny daddy uncle? agrees with all these progressive ideas of you know 20 years ago. And what's happened is they're, they're 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 striving to find increasingly new causes that will distinguish them from the normal american who is very very progressive by this by by all standards even the most conservative viewer of your show accepts ideas that would have been just wildly considered wildly progressive even 50 years ago, or much less than 100 years ago. So what's happened is they're kind of running out of good ideas, and so when you run out of good ideas, you you have to turn to to bad ones, and that's what we're seeing happen. We're, we're a good example that, that 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 bothers me is when you know people who are baking cakes for a living uh, refuse to bake a cake for a gay marriage. Now it's it's very easy to find people who are willing to bake cakes for gay marriages. That's that's not the problem. So the question is, how burning a grievance is it to go after this one or two, these one or two holdouts who, because of their conscientious objection, won't do this? Is this really a burning grievance? Uh, and you see this, you see this everywhere else too. And one of the things you and I have talked about before is that very a lot of conservatives looks at this woke thing and, and they say, ah, you know, socialism, Marxism. And I think the woke are very flattered to hear that, you know, they're, that they're being called by such honorific names. But to me, if again, looking at the history of socialism, and I think we have to understand how many different types of socialism there have been. One thing that all socialists have agreed to is that that mankind, slower mankind, the slower parts of mankind, the backward people, need to be led by an elite who have advanced ideas, the right ideas for the future. The elite can see the future clearly and everyone else who's kind of slow to get on the, the right side of history train needs to be brought up today and surely their, their children can be saved. They can be, you know, brain, uh, not brainwashed, taught, you know, the right values. So what we end up here is that you, you're, you're seeing it now where people that used to be, you know, kind of moderate liberals are, are now you know, embracing all these incredibly woke, crazy ideas uh, and in the, for example, in the book, I, 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 I bring up George Orwell with his idea of newspeak. And I, try, I, I imagine trying to explain to George Orwell what the term gender affirming, affirming care means. Now Orwell might've thought it meant letting boys, you know, be boys and girls to you know, be girls. But if you tried to explain to him what gender affirming care means, which is the sexual mutilation of children, he would have said, oh my God, You know, newspeak, the newspeak of the book have really just gone far beyond anything I could have comprehended. Yeah, I only said things like slavery is freedom, but to call this gender-affirming care is is taking Orwell's <laughs> idea of, of newspeak to just just dimensions he could not have dreamed of.
0: I want to ask you, as you were talking about, you know, in in, in the book, you're you're speaking or you're imagining a conversation with Orwell, and I just because we're running out of time here, and I do wanna I, I do wanna get some sort of sense of what writing is like for you. Uh, it's a work in progress. I mean just just basic facts like how many hours a day you're writing and also you suggested before um, before the show started that you're um, that you're, procedures are very different from the way you understand most writers write. So again, we've only got a few minutes left, and it's just been a, 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 a mind-blowing conversation. But I want to get to, some again, some of the brass tacks about how you work. Who knows? Maybe some, someone out in the audience is working on a book, maybe working on a novel. And um, so again, just to get some insight into your processes as a working writer.
1: I, I wake up about 5, 5.30 or 6 o'clock. Uh, when I'm working, I, I get my cup of coffee, I come to my desk, and I work normally four to five hours. I don't, I'm not one of those people that sharpens their pencil or plays with, uh, you know, paper clips. I, I just start working. And I've, I, I, I've written and published novels before. And oftentimes when I'm really in the flow of writing, I don't feel like I'm the one writing. I feel like the ideas are literally, I'm just a conduit. I'm just a, a humble typist that's putting this out. And I, I know a lot of people begin, they begin a book by knowing what they wanna write. And if I knew what I wanted to write, I wouldn't get the trouble of writing it. To me, writing is discovery, it's an act of discovery for myself personally. And the only reason I could ever imagine spending the energy to write personally is for me to discover stuff I did not know before. And if I can, if I can share my discoveries with other people, they have the patience to listen to me or to read my books, then I'm delighted. That's all I want to do. I don't want to convert anybody to any mind. I don't want to be a Jordan Peterson telling people what soccer games they can watch. I want to make people think. And I want to make people assess the ideas they've taken for granted sometimes, hopefully in the in the, the notion that they will get clear ideas in their own head. And that's all I want to do. My,
0: my question, Lee, is about... Um... It's a, When you said that what you enjoy about writing is discovering something and that's what, that's what drives you to write, what do you mean by that? Because I think it's not just that you're picking up another book and researching a subject, but what is it that you're discovering and what is that process of discovering as you're writing?
1: I don't do research in the normal sense of the word. Uh, I mean, I'll look things up if, I, if, I've, if my memory fails me. But basically, my research has been my entire life of reading, and I'm now 75 years old. And also the experience I've had in, uh, outside the, the intellectual world. I, I, think, I, I think something that I, I bring to the table is I'm a, I sometimes refer to myself as a recovering intellectual. I'm a person who I, I've mastered a lot of things that you know, you're supposed to do if you're a if you're good intellectual. But I've also had experience in the real world, and I deal with people who aren't intellectuals. And one of the things I discovered is that very often ideas that, that intellectuals just they, they think are very clear to themselves, uh, when they try to explain it to somebody that's you know not into that 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 clique of intellectuals, they find themselves really at the loss for words. And I think this is often because they don't really understand the idea in question, like the idea of progress we were talking about earlier. But in in terms of my writing, it's I, I appeal to I, I can sometimes go back to you know, things I, I read when I was you know, 14 or events that took place when I was even, even younger. So it's like, I, I feel like throughout my life that certain ideas get kind of registered in my head and they can come from, from reading, from a, a, a novel or a history book or philosophy text. And these ideas kind of stick in my head. And one day they kind of get together and say, hey Lee, let's, let's think about this. Let's start writing a project. For example, in, in my last book, The Next American Civil War, the question was, how did some societies become free? How did some societies enjoy liberty that other societies didn't? Was it because they read the right books? Well, no, that wasn't, that couldn't possibly yet. So I was plagued by this issue of how, does, how is this possible? And I know that there are ideas that, well, everyone woke up one day and decided to read John Locke. But, you know, that's not, that didn't satisfy me. And I discovered that, that essentially, you have to have people with a certain kind of attitude, which I call natural libertarians, people for whom their own personal freedom is very, very important. Otherwise, you can write all the constitutions, you can write all the laws you want to, it's not gonna do a damn bit of good. Uh, and this was, a, this was a discovery, as I said, when, I, when I, I did not know why. And one of the things I did, where I was doing kind of research, I was looking through the history of those, those events, that had basically given people more liberty than they had before. And one of the things that kind of surprised me is that, that tax revolts were at the heart of these people, of, 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 of people who, were, who got freedom for themselves, the American Revolution being the most famous. And I happened to be writing the book just as the Tea Party came into focus. And I was struck by the, by the, the hatred that the Tea Party, which I saw as a, Pretty non-threatening movement, the hatred that liberals had towards it. But I also recognized the Tea Party in saying, okay, enough in taxes was, was really in line with an older tradition, in fact, the only tradition that has given mankind freedom. Because one of the things I, I discovered myself in the process is that, you know, I used to look on the American revolutionaries as kind of crazy because I had a pretty good deal from England. But one of the things I I discovered during the writing of the book is that. You never can tell when power is suddenly to become so oppressive and so powerful that you can no longer do anything about. It. Okay, and therefore people have to be a little bit paranoid. It's only been the paranoid piece of people, like the American revolutions revolutionaries, who've actually been able to preserve freedom for us. And so, rather than you know say, oh, well, these are crackpots, conspiracy theorists, maybe we should look at them as as what they have been. They have been historically agents that to keep. A great, overpowering government and state from from just just overpressing, overwhelming us.
0: Yeah, no, this is great. My my wife especially is going to love this because she believes she she's from England originally, but she believes that conspiracy theories are the heart of uh, that that they, they are quintessentially American. So what you're saying here is that paranoia, um, and 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 conspiracy theories are. Actually, that that's what keeps people on their toes, and that's what makes them that's what makes them revolutionaries.
1: I would I, I I'm all for your wife's theory. Take the Glorious Revolution of 1688, in which you know very often Americans say, say okay everyone read John Locke's Second Treatise on Government that's why it took place. Well, it took place because of a conspiracy theory. the the King King James II who was a Catholic suddenly had a son. Okay. Before, there had been no heir to the throne that could be raised Catholic. And this was, nobody questioned, no no one today questions this was really his son. But the conspiracy theory developed, and this was the thing that really caused him to be kicked off the throne of England, not reading John Locke. The conspiracy theory was that Jesuits had snuck a, a, a baby who was not his son into, in a bedpan. And... Hey, the, the Jesuits were behind this it was a Jesuit conspiracy to, to put the force on, to, on the good Protestant England this Catholic heir and this was a thing that caught on this is what made people you know decide you know James II you know had to go to England at the time and, and threw him off the throne and if you look at some of the, the tracks of the people writing for example everyone remembers the opening of the Declaration of Independence but if you go back a little further it's like oh King George II is going to enslave us I mean, that is pretty wild. King George III, the idea of enslaving you know, the yeah, Americans enslaving, was yeah. was just a wild conspiracy theory. Lincoln, when he attacked when he attacked the uh, the Dred Scott decision, also a, was very fond of a conspiracy theory. He thought that Buchanan and the Supreme Court, uh, Taney and all that, all the people got together to come up with the Dred Scott decision, which allowed uh, slave owners to bring their slaves into into territory, into federal territory. Another example. I could go on, but maybe I should stop.
0: Lee Harris, this has been a fantastic conversation, uh, uh, going from uh, going from strong point to strong point, ending with how conspiracy and we have to pick this up. We have to pick this up again soon. How conspiracy theories are the are the heart of American society in many ways. And you and I are going to talk about that uh, in public uh, and get to talk about that in private for a while, too. In the meantime, Lee Harris, I want to thank you. Just a great conversation. Author, uh, a work in progress. What is wrong with the right side of history by Lee Harris. He's working on it. He shared shared a lot of uh, insight with us today about the book, about how he goes about writing a book and many other things. Lee, thank you so much for being with us here on Words That Matter. And thanks to all of you for watching. We'll see you in our next episode of Words That Matter. In the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later. The logic of their position demanded it. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense. And what was terrifying was not that they would kill you for thinking otherwise, but that they might be right. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four, or that the force of gravity works? Or that the past is unchangeable? If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what then?